Hey y'all, welcome to Best Virginia, the podcast where we talk about the fascinating history, culture, and folklore of the wild and wonderful state of West Virginia. Welcome back to Best Virginia, and happy Halloween out there, people. It's my favorite time of year. It's my favorite holiday. I love the spooky season, and today I have just the episode for you. Today I'm going to be talking to Bally Raven, a.k.a. Kristen Puckett, author and illustrator of In the Land of the Catawampus. She is an expert on West Virginia cryptids and folklore. So we get to talk about her new book, in the land of Catawampus, and some of her research, a little bit of her background, some of her favorite cryptids, and she's going to let us in on a few cryptids that are a little more obscure, you know, a little less mainstream, which I think is awesome. I originally heard Kristen speak on Greenbrier Valley Brewing Company's Storyteller series, and she was speaking about a similar topic on some of the lesser-known cryptids of West Virginia. And I was instantly hooked. I thought it was super interesting. And she actually brings a couple of those cryptids onto today's episode and lets us in on a little bit of their background. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Kristen. Uh, My name is Kristen Puckett, and I am from Lucasville, Ohio. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about your uh, some of the work you do. Uh, I'm an illustrator and a ceramicist, and I specialize in folklore and preserving not only... um, folklore that has numerous accounts but those that are mostly forgotten or are believed to be unreliable accounts first of all i really i want to say that i really enjoy your style i think it's awesome thank you um it really kind of i think it really captures the feeling of folklore in general but also some of the stuff that you tackle um and i like that you look at some of the more forgotten or obscure things because you see things like mothman and Flatwoods Monster and all that stuff, which is great. You know, I love them. But Mm -hmm. I I think there are so many other stories that don't get enough attention. Right. And I don't look at it as um, trying to prove something as being real or or fake. I just um, approach it more as a historian or a preserver of um, the everyday person's accounts. And I like that um, because that's exactly what they are. That's how we pass them along to each other. That's how we Mm -hmm. learn about them. And I think they all deserve their their own stories in their own right. Mm-hmm. So what are before we get into some of the more obscure uh, necessarily, I want to hear what your favorite cryptids are. It doesn't have to be from West Virginia. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think my favorite personally is the Nisi Bisi. I think I'm saying it right. Some of the Native American cryptids, they're a little bit difficult to pronounce. Right. But... Um, as I live on the Ohio River, I'm a, little, a bit partial to it, and it's also a dragon cryptid, which is very unusual for North America. Oh, yeah. But so. it was a um, a dragon said to live in the river, and people would not want to cross over because of it, the dangers it would create, whirlpools, of course, attack and eat anybody that came into its domain, 
and they grew these beds of copper at the bottom that everyone wanted, but it was too dangerous to go obtain. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'd never, like I said, I've been in the area for about 10 years, um, and I'd never heard of that one. I think it's really cool. There are lots of uh, Native American stories from around this area, it seems like. Mm -hmm, There are, and I was very surprised there's a stone depicting it on the river, and I've lived here my whole life almost, and I never heard of it. Oh, wow. Where's that at? I'm pretty sure it's near Point Pleasant. Okay. But uh, there, are, there are a lot of um, Native American cryptids from West Virginia, and how I went about determining if it counted as West Virginia folklore is if historically the tribe had lived in the area or that they were known to um, migrate through the state or interact with those that lived in the state because often stories are exchanged and uh, readapted to each culture. So I tried to be very specific, but a little lenient on it, because I want to make sure everyone's story is counted and attributed to each culture. Mm -hmm. But we also have lost a lot of that information, too. Or um, as uh, Europeans came in and settled, they also would take these Native American stories and make their own versions, such as like the Wendigo, um, Bigfoot, and they would create their own versions of it. Right, and you know, whenever I heard you talking about the Wendigo on uh, Greenbrier Valley Brewing's um, Storyteller series, you know, I don't know if you know exactly what went through my mind, um, or if you'd want to take a guess about what I thought about. I know, I'd love to hear it. Um, was Pet Cemetery, uh, the the book and movies? All right, based right. On I actually Stephen just King's watched story. that for the first time. <laughs> Yeah, so um, I think the book goes into way more detail about it than the movies do, but it supposedly was tied to the Wendigo. That's where my mind went. I don't usually associate that with West Virginia uh, folklore and stuff. So I thought that was really cool. And I think I think that's what you're trying to get at is, you know, our history is a little bit more rich than is kind of mainstream. Right. Uh, I think West Virginia is the state most populated with cryptid stories, which is really interesting of why or... If it's just storytelling or if people actually do see things yeah. here that no one else does elsewhere. Right. That does bring up some questions for sure. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we haven't really addressed it yet, but do you want to kind of plug your book real quick? Oh, right. Um, I wrote a book called In the Land of Catawampus. It is every piece of folklore I could find and get out of people in the area compiled into one big book. I think it's 457 pages. But it has everything from ghost stories to creatures you're familiar with, like the Mothman, and really obscure, strange things like um, the departure bird who, you know, sneaks into your window at night and sucks your brain out of your eyeball. And but you there's also all... a lot of uh, fey folklore, too, based on superstitions brought over from uh, European countries and reinvented in the 1900s, 1800s. Wow. And you did all the illustrations for, for all those too, right? Yes. Wow. It looked like a ton of work went into that book. Um, yeah. I, ha- I haven't gotten it yet, um, but I, I think I will. Is it out yet? Yeah, I have it available on my Etsy under Bally Raven. Okay. And that's B-A-L-L-Y-R-A-V-E-N, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so you guys can find that there. Okay. So what kind of got you interested in... in in doing that book? I've always loved horror, so of course that played a big part into it, but um, actually I moved to Alaska when I went to college for illustration, and I really started missing home, and I started basing my um, my senior project on 
Appalachia and our stories and why we create them. And then I realized how much I really loved all the things we had. Um, We have some really great stories, and I'm really proud of the creativity of our culture. And I just like to celebrate it and kind of spread these stories around. And uh, ever since then, I've been enjoying collecting stories from elsewhere, too. I'm starting a book on Ohio and Kentucky, and I've kind of made it my goal to find these stories and preserve them and try to add more to them. I bet that's a lot of work. It, it is, but I, I really love it. That's awesome. I, th- I think it's really cool. Uh, and like you said, preserving it and being able to put it all in one place like that or in a couple different volumes, um, that's a good way to do that because they are stories that are, you know, kind of really, you can go from area, even if we're just talking about West Virginia type stuff, you can go from area to area and find a new story um, that you never heard of. So being able to, mm-hmm. you know, if you talk, especially like if you divide the state into sections and you talk to people from different, say like the Eastern Panhandle, um, and we're from, you know, the Ohio River section, um, you're going to get totally different stories. And there may be some mm-hmm. that they're not um, too familiar with. Right. And then sometimes there'll be a split of um, one side of the state will have the devil dog, which is basically a chupacabra. But then the other portion of the state will have the snarly owl, which is a ghost version of the same kind of dog figure, which is really interesting. Right. So one of my favorite uh, ghost stories, and I've already done an episode on it, is the tale of Mamie Thurman. Oh, yeah, that, that is a really good one. Yeah, did she make it into the book? She did. I, there are so many ghost stories in West Virginia. I cannot believe it. So whenever you were doing your research for the book, did you just like talk to people from different areas, or how did you go about getting all that stuff? Get some good leads, and from there I would look into newspaper articles, you can go into these forums where people, they're out of date. They're from like the 90s, use the Wayback Machine to access them. And there's some really strange stuff in there. Because not only the Native American folklore, which is a little bit more difficult to find where there's not always a lot of information. Sometimes you have to go to museums, things like that. But there's also this new kind of folklore that's developed through the internet. And that's pretty easy to access. But there's a lot to go through with that too. So I have books, I'll look on videos and podcasts, old newspaper articles, I can go to, you know, local museums. I talk to people at the Mothman Festival every year and CryptoCon. I don't know if they've had that in a few years, but I'll go to my conventions and festivals. If someone has a story, uh, I'll have them tell it to me, I'll take notes. If they want their story to be public, I can publish it. Uh, their emails, there's a lot of different ways people give me leads or tell me their own versions. Wow. And it sounds like, you know, it sounds like you got to a lot of, a lot of different stories that way. I did. Um, the shadow people, especially. Tell us about that. Uh, the shadow people are a very vague type of mythology of human like shadows that can only be seen in the corner of your eye. Or if you wake up and you feel paralyzed, they, um, seem to take a three dimensional, form while also looking two-dimensional and they just put terror into people and there are a surprising amount of people who see and experience this that is really strange but there's not a whole lot of information about it it's one of the most mysterious chapters in the book in my opinion oh wow are there different versions of the shadow people um no they're always well i take that back there is the plain humanoid shape no distinguishable characteristics 
And then there's a separate kind that has a hat. It's always described as the same kind of hat, too. And this version is seen throughout the world. There's a lot of different occurrences of it. Oh, wow. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, so you have people arguing about if they think it's ghost-related or demonic folklore or some kind of interdimensional being, and no one really likes to agree on what that is in the mythology. That's pretty cool. I, I do like, um, you know, in my episode about the Mothman, I talk about the uh, Blackbird of Chernobyl, how it's like a basically a, their version of um, Mothman. And, you know, he's there's different versions of these same stories that are all around the world and all throughout time. Um, yeah, there was one in uh, Russia, too. Yeah. Sure. Uh, and it might, might be that one. Yeah, so, like, with the Blackbird of Chernobyl, they, right before the, the reactor blew up um, and caused the Chernobyl incident happen, what they described sounded exactly like the description of the Mothman, the black-winged creature with red eyes and no discernible facial features, uh, was saw hovering above the power plant, uh, above the specific reactor that um, had a meltdown. Right, and there was one in China, too, above a, a dam that, right before it burst, they saw a dark flying figure with bright red eyes right before the dam broke. Wow. Yeah, and I think it's really cool, and I talk about it a little bit in my Mothman episode and also in my interview with Bo Kennedy from the Bump Podcast. We talk about, like, how... Because he looks at all the supernatural stuff, you know, from all over. You know, that's just one of my favorite topics to cover is supernatural and, you know, spooky, eerie. Mm-hmm. But we talk about, you know, how these stories kind of permeate all around the world in different cultures, and they might call them different things. I'm interested to see what you come across with things like that as far as your next projects with Ohio and Kentucky to see how many stories kind of sound similar to the ones you came across and how those stories kind of match up. Right. Um, So far in Ohio, they also have their own version of Mothman. I haven't really studied the differences yet, but I know that for sure. And they have their own Bigfoot legend. And Kentucky, they're not as much into Bigfoot, but they have an abundance of Goatman lore, which I find really interesting. Yeah, that does sound interesting. Um, did you run across any of that in West Virginia? Um, no, no Goatman in West Virginia, which really surprised me with all the bridges and trains. Yeah. Usually Goatmen are associated with those locations. Huh. Like uh, the Billy Goat's Gruff? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you might know the Popelick monster from Kentucky. That sounds familiar, but I, I don't know a whole lot about it. That's the most famous one, um, I think, in the United States. He is said to lure teenagers or people who are out at night that aren't supposed to be to climb up this giant train trestle and jump off. Okay. I've heard that story. I, I might have heard it called something different, maybe. Mm-hmm. It may have a different name. I haven't, I haven't run across one, but... Well, that's really cool. So after you finish, I know it's still a little early, but after you finish Ohio and Kentucky, are your plans, like, are you looking at broadening the area? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have connections in Alaska, so I may do some some research there. I know their, their cryptids are far different from ours, which is pretty expected as, you know, the Inuit cultures. I know they had one of a, I think a sea otter that abducts children and has the face of a human. That's the only one I know off off the top of my head. Does kind of open up a whole new world once you start looking at different areas. Yeah, it really does. And those are, are loosely tied to actual historical events or accounts I think are the most interesting, personally. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know if, if you know of the Cumberland Dragon. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I love that one. The little article from, an I-, I think it was an Irish newspaper. And there's no mention of it anywhere else except in this one paper from the 1800s. Talking, or it might have even been late 1700s. But it talks about this giant lizard creature with two legs and a long tongue that would spew acid on people. And that the natives would tell the infantrymen that they had to submerge themselves in water or it would burn their skin away. Oh, wow. So do you have any other projects uh, in the works right now? Um, Currently, no. I'm taking a a short little break, just working on research when I feel like this last book took me about three years to write, research, and illustrate. I hope you all are enjoying this episode of Best Virginia. I just wanted to take a second to tell you guys about some of the great merch I offer. If you go to teespring.com, that's T-E-E-S-P-R-I-N-G.com, and search for Best Virginia Podcast, you can find Best Virginia t-shirts, hoodies, crew neck sweatshirts, COVID-19 face masks, and coffee mugs, as well as other things that I'll be adding in the meantime. Now, back to the show. So I'll be starting the next book um, sometime next year, and I'm working on a little animation project where I do readings of some of the stories I've already collected with a little animated video to pair with it. That could be really cool. Yeah, I wanted to get it for Halloween, but the timing just didn't work out. Oh, yeah. Maybe next year. Maybe next year. (laughs) Yeah, this year's been a little crazy for anything to work out. Mm Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you do some illustration work as well. Um, so tell us a little bit about that. I've always drawn, and that's what I went to school to study, because that's one of my strongest skills, I think. Depicting cryptids is a little difficult sometimes, because no one knows what they look like, and no one, well, not no one, but most people get angry when they're not depicted the way they think they should be. There's always someone that's going to be like, no, it can't be that way. It has to be this way instead. So. Right. Um, one of the questions I was thinking of when you mentioned that is how do you determine which approach you want to take to drawing a cryptid? So I'll look at or I'll read the accounts if there are any of what it looked like and then I'll think about how it would live, what kind of qualities or features it would have to have and then I'll look at uh, local wildlife, what's more popular in an area, what kind of communities are there, what kind of food it would have to eat to determine size and type. Some of them can get a little bit more difficult when they're vague. And then I'll just uh, do my best to be true to the the stories or the literature while trying to also incorporate some of the more natural, accurate creatures that actually do live in the area to kind of, to people who live there that see it, they'll be like, oh, that looks a lot like this animal. And they'll be, you know, it reminds me of their home. So the folklore is reflecting their own environment. Oh, wow. That sounds like a lot of thought goes into that. Yeah, I try to be very thoughtful of the imagery. And I also, I like to study animals, too. So it, it kind of is a project where I combine all my interests into one thing. Yeah, you can't beat that. I didn't know if that sounded like a weird question whenever I asked you how, to, how you approach drawing them. Um, but in my head, I was kind of wondering, like, do you just kind of go off what what they say and kind of incorporate just that but it sounds like you you do a lot more than that yeah and sometimes if someone has a statement that is just so bizarre I have to think well maybe it was in shadows or they weren't in their right headspace what would if they saw something what would be other explanations for things they've seen and that can kind of give you a little bit more leeway 
Right, and I imagine that probably plays into a lot of uh, that's that could be where other wildlife and things come into play too. Um, like you think about in West Virginia, it seems like anything anything that has wings, any of the cryptids that have wings, always get you know they're an owl. Yeah. Like the the Flatwoods monster, they said it was an owl. The Mothman was an owl because you know it just makes sense. They can get very large and cranes, owls and cranes. Mm-hmm. Um, so being able to incorporate things like that. And even basing the monster's shape on the silhouette of one of those creatures, I think that helps a lot too. Yeah. What is your? There's a lot of things you can do with it. You're only limited by your creativity, really. Right, and I think it. You know, from from your work that I've seen so far, um, which is limited, but it's that's not going to stay that way. You know, it seems like you are able to put a lot of that creativity together and be able to put all those things. All those different aspects together is really impressive. And then to throw your creativity on top of that, I think, is really, really impressive. Yeah, really, I just love the area. It's really special to me. And I like to show how much I care for everything about it in my work. Right, and that's something that's going to live on. Right. Well, I hope so. I, I think it will. And being able to pass it along to, you know, to different people and educate people, too, um, you know, from different areas because I'm sure people from all over are buying this thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was surprised at how many different states people were interested in our state's history. And I try to throw in some actual history in our wildlife because I just like to talk about the things that we do know exist and are real too, because I'm proud of that too. Our beautiful landscapes and our interesting animals. Yeah, and there's plenty of them out there. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that I'm hoping to get through with this show is obviously not the most well-spoken person, but I'm hoping this can be a good way to get lots of different people together and kind of build different connections. And I have some episodes where I just tell stories and I do some research and things like that. And there are always going to be those episodes, but also being able to talk to different people like you and like Bo that I mentioned earlier, who has the bump podcast and, you know, like Alex from Greenbrier Valley Brewing, uh, just mm-hmm. being able to connect with people that are doing lots of different things is how, you know, how stuff gets passed along. Yeah, and I'm not well-spoken either, so I always have I've just told myself that everyone has a story to tell, and if everyone just didn't care about how they came off or if they weren't good at speaking and just talked, then that would be something great. Because everyone has um, information to share or stories. And I, I just tried to get over that. <laughs> but the important thing is that we're getting our stories out there. And I mean, the work that you put into your book, the research and the, you said it took about three and a half years, you said. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of work and being able to combine all of that, you know, all those different stories together and put your own personal, your own personal touch onto all that too. I mean, that's, that's a lot of work. It is. I like to encourage people to take these stories and add to them themselves. Yeah, because that's how they get to where they are anyway most of the time. You know, people adding their own personal accounts. And, you know, sometimes people perceive things differently. Sometimes people see things differently. And being able to put all those together to make, you know, to make it like a conglomerate of all those stories can be really right. cool. Where is your favorite place in the state? My favorite place would probably be southeastern forests. I visit there quite a bit. I love that part of uh, the Appalachians myself the southeastern west virginia section i think that's the beauty of our state you can go just a little a couple hours away and get a whole different dose of you know a whole different dose of wildlife different dose of scenery stories Mm -hmm. it's just really cool 
Yeah, my family was from Welch, and that's that's a much different area. Very rocky and kind of harsh feeling. Right, yeah. So what are some cool stories from, from that area? Do you know any? Uh, there's mostly just Bigfoot. Okay. Bigfoot and ghost stories. I think the, the coal towns kind of have more of a ghost story influence. Yeah. Of course, you have the big feet that are supposedly living in the abandoned structures and mining areas, but not a lot else. Okay. I still think that's pretty interesting, though. Yeah, because uh, I guess even the monsters abandoned those areas. <laughs> okay. We talked to, about a couple different um, more obscure cryptids, and like you mentioned the departure birds earlier. Uh, mm-hmm. I, the first time I had actually heard about those were um, on your video with Greenbar Valley. And so I thought that was really interesting. I said, do you have any other maybe lesser known cryptids or creatures that you want to kind of throw out there? Yeah, there's one, the Nunahe. It's a Native American legend that is a lot like the hobbits from Tolkien's work. There are these people that live in the Appalachian Mountains that come to those in need, and they have little homes built in the hills. When they're active, the houses are warm, and they have these feasting tables, and you're invited in, and it's a nice time. But when you're not a good person, or they don't want to interact with you, they're just these holes in the wall with like rocks inside furniture should be. I just think it's so neat that we have our own kind of hobbit legends. I know Tolkien based his on European mythology, but it's nice to know that we have our own kind of version of that too. Wow, I definitely didn't know about that. That's awesome. They were Cherokee mythology. Okay. Then uh, there's also this one I really love to talk about, which is the freshwater octopus that has been discovered many times in the mountain rivers. Oh, wow. Of course, people try to say that they are, you know, just pet octopuses that have been dumped, but um, here's the dates I have for their They were found in the Kanawha River in 1933, the Blackwater River in 1946, Tiger Valley 1955, Licking County 1959, Ohio State Park 1999, the Ohio River in 1999. <laughs> just this big list of times octopuses were found in the uh, rivers. When they pulled them out, of course, they died or they killed them for study, but still pretty interesting. Most of the time, I think children were uh, the discoverers. You know, me thinking about when I was a kid just playing in the river or fishing or something and, you know, running across an octopus, that would be weird. Yeah, I would have I would have pulled it out too and put it <laughs> in a bucket. <laughs> yeah, I, I would have took it home. Like, Mom, Dad, can we keep it? <laughs> Um, but I think it's interesting that they, you said that most of the time they try to write it off as pet octopuses that got dumped in the river. Um, how, right. how many people are having pet octopuses in West Virginia yeah, in the thirties? Especially, especially in West Virginia in the thirties and fifties. How many people are going to have that? Right. That's, that's where my mind went. Whenever you mentioned right. that, I was like, how many people are having pet octopuses, especially in that time frame in this area? I could see maybe like, maybe some celebrities for like their... I don't know, their cool fish tank or something like that, or their saltwater pool, or I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just somebody, well, I don't want this, That's it's not a puppy anymore, so I'm going to throw it in the river. <laughs> right. Uh, maybe in the 2000s, but even then, still, I don't know many people who have exotic pets around here. Right. So you spent some time in Alaska. You said you went up there for school? Yeah, I studied at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Wow. How long were you up there? About three and a half years. That's really cool. And you came back here afterwards? 
I went to El Paso for about two, two and a half years, and then I came back here. Okay. What did you do while you were there, if you don't mind me asking? Did you kind of learn anything? In El Paso, I worked with some galleries down there and uh, mostly worked on the book and built a sort of um, backer base through Kickstarter. That could come in handy if you're just trying to get on your feet and get started, and especially with a project that you have to do a lot of research and things like that. Yeah, it's um, it's a lot of uh, communication and updates, but I, I enjoy it, and I like to... Um, I just like to share my work. I'm not super into it for the money. Right. Although, you know, you have to survive. Right. And you have <laughs> to be, be able hard. to Right, you have to be able to afford your research and travel like traveling and things like that is a is a huge part of what you're doing. Yes. Yeah. That's why it's it's a lot easier to work local. Yeah. I imagine. It's definitely a pleasure to get to talk to you and I'll I'll be picking up your book soon for sure. Yeah. It was really nice to um meet up and I'd, I'd love to listen to the, your archives I don't know if you have them on Facebook or Spotify yeah I, uh, I actually do have it on Spotify um, Apple Music it's on Amazon now or not Apple <laughs> Music Apple Podcasts um, Amazon and you can find it on uh, Best Virginia bestvirginia.buzzsprout.com B-U-Z-Z Sprout um, mm-hmm. also I have links uh, to all that pinned on my Facebook on, on okay. the show's Facebook account and it's just always, Best Virginia Podcast. Yeah, I'm always looking for something to listen to on my trips. So. Yeah, um, obviously my episodes get better as they go after I, as I'm starting to figure things out. One of my least listened to episodes is about the Bluebeard of Quiet Dale. I don't know if you're familiar with that story. I'm not. Um, but it's actually one of my favorites, and it, it has a significantly less amount of downloads than the other ones. Um, but it's he was one of America's first serial killers. And he would, oh, I'm surprised I don't know about that. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, he would lure women in with, they called them Lonely Hearts ads. It was basically like the old school version of Tinder in the newspaper. You would write up this little bio about yourself and put it in the newspaper and people would call you. Um, he would lure different women in and like promise to marry him. Then he would kill him and bury him. He had a murder uh, a murder garage. And, uh, oh, wow. Yeah, he had like, it had separate rooms built in, underneath it. The story's really cool because he ended up getting caught, like, in other states, and he would bring him back here. It's definitely interesting. I, I recommend checking it out. All right. Well, I'll talk to you later. Uh, we'll definitely have to stay in touch. I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, have a good end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> I'll sure try. You too. <laughs> Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, there it is, people. Bally Raven was an awesome guest to have on the show. I hope you guys enjoyed it, and I hope we get to collaborate a little bit in the future. So keep your eyes peeled. Uh, she's an awesome artist, so be sure to check out some of her work. Also, be sure to check out her Etsy shop and that book, In the Land of Catawampus. Um, it looks amazing. Like I said, I haven't had the chance to check it out now, but very soon. Very soon. It looks like she's put a ton of work into it. She's really done her research. She knows her stuff. Uh, she got to talk to a lot of the people who know the stories firsthand, secondhand. So that's the place to go. Um, I'll definitely be looking to, forward to checking it out, so I encourage you guys to check it out as well. So until next time, I'm your host Jordan, and this has been another episode of Best Virginia. Stay wild and stay wonderful, folks.